the March episode of the Waterlog Podcast. My name is Dan Janolfi. And I'm Howard Marlowe. Thanks very much to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today for hosting us. Today we have a very special guest joining us, but first we want to touch on a few key announcements and then we'll get right to our interview. So first and foremost, Howard, earmarks, right? This is uh, something that the House is talking about. Um, bringing back the infamous congressionally directed funding may find its way back into legislation this year with transparency and accountability, or in other words, limits. And these would be limits on how much each member can request and how much total spending power earmarks can account for. That's right, and this is only going to be for nonprofits. So local governments, state governments, uh, nonprofit uh, NGOs, I guess the column, uh, those will be the ones who. Uh, are eligible to for earmarks and members can submit requests. Requests are going to be put up on a website. A lot of transparency. And what are the what are the limits? Limits are ten earmark requests per member, and they have to total no more than one percent of the total federal spending. Now, so far, the House's appropriators are the ones who've agreed on the rules. Uh, the Senate appropriators have not yet done that but they've indicated that they will. So we're likely to see some version of this in this Congress, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's time, it's due. Some members still believe that, and I'm gonna quote here, earmarks are exactly what's wrong with Congress. Do you believe that? No, what's wrong with Congress is Congress doesn't work. Earmarks have two main benefits, and I may even think of a third as I say these. One is that they get members to work together. So, you know, the Senate's not going to have 10 earmarks, each senator, but whatever it is, for any given, there are 12 appropriation bills. You can't have everybody asking for 10 in one bill. So you can have members saying, well, I need this in my bill. Will you give me support for this other one in, you know, your bill? So this goes to start working together. And what do you know? Members of Congress working together yeah, it happened, and I think it can happen again. Number two, biggest reason from our point of view is Corps of Engineers. When earmarks were eliminated, they were congressional earmarks that were eliminated, and not presidential earmarks. The president has always earmarked the Corps' appropriation bills, and that's meant that you know whatever's happened has happened to the disadvantage of Congress. And it's meant that a couple of people over at OMB have been able to, you know, do their thing and micromanage the core every cent that it spends. Now they have one more that is a third benefit. For smaller local governments, you're going to find that you're going to be able to get some of the transit uh, grants and other things that are going to come through earmarks. You don't get them through the competitive process. Competitive process tends to favor mid-sized to larger local governments and regional organizations. So I think it's going to be good. Yeah, I think for core projects that have a clear benefit on national, state, and uh, and, and and local levels, uh, we just don't see it, you know, from our side as, as earmarks being a bad thing. Um, I think, you know, as you mentioned, the president has continued to earmark the core's budget, and his staff, you know, essentially controls, you know who gets the, the, the large pots of money that Congress adds. So I think everyone can agree that there's wasteful spending going on, and um, Congress just needs to figure out a way with transpa transparency and accountability of how they can 
use earmarks particularly for the court. The odd part is that we're going back to about 2009, 2010, when Congress had figured out how to do everything transparent, uh, transparently, but they then got scared of all the bad publicity about earmarks, which was going on at the time. Uh, basically, you can't buy, you can't put in an earmark for something that is a pet project. If you do, it's going to be put up on a website and somebody's going to say, why did Representative Sandra Jones put this in for our community? It's another teapot scandal or teapot museum or whatever it was. Uh, transparency is usually wonderful and I think it's going to be in the public interest. Yeah, I think a few examples are, are used against earmarks, the bridge to nowhere, you yeah. know, things like that. But, but really earmarks for the core uh, could, could drastically change the future. Uh, moving on to cabinet nominees, we're tracking the Biden administration's cabinet uh, nominees, and so far we have Deb Holland slated to serve as Secretary of the Interior, uh, with no nominee yet for the Assistant Secretary for Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, which is the position in charge of overseeing the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is a major agency in our coastal realm. Uh, as we've already noted, Pete Buttigieg has already been confirmed as Transportation Secretary, but we have no appointee for the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civil Works, who oversees the Corps of Engineers. We do have uh, a few rumblings of a new leadership position at the Corps uh, to be filled by uh, Jaime, I believe that is, um, Pinkham. Mr. Pinkham will serve as the Deputy Principal Assistant Secretary of the Army for Civil Works, uh, which will help oversee major federal water resources decisions. Um, in his current role, Mr. Pinkham is the Executive Director of the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission based in, uh, based in Portland, Oregon. Next, a race in the Corps' backlog? Question mark. House Energy Appropriations uh, Subcommittee Chairman, uh, Chairwoman Marcy Kaptur has called to erase the Corps' nearly $100 billion backlog through a, precision, through a provision that would be included in an upcoming infrastructure legislation package. Now, she says the proposal will create thousands of badly needed jobs and put to rest dozens of studies that have essentially sat on the shelves for years. Now, I, I really don't think $100 billion can be dressed in one bill, but what do you think, Howard? Well, uh, uh, call me doubtful. Uh, it isn't just the hundred billion. First of all, thousands of jobs I don't think it's going to create. Uh, we have, you know, give business to engineering firms, gives business to existing core employees, That's and, and no problem with that. But there's a reason that why the backlog is there, and one she's pinpointed quite correctly is money. Absolutely. Some of these uh, that on backlog have other problems associated with them that have put them on backlog. Could be environmental problems, could be lack of community support for them and all sorts of things like that. But I think give uh, kudos to Chairman Kaptur for at least highlighting the fact, let's get rid of the backlog so we can stop beating the core over the head for something that is essentially not their problem. Right. Not their fault, at least. Exactly. Yeah. Finally, FEMA, almost out of money. Uh, this is just one particular, uh, one particular fund, the Federal Disaster Relief Fund. Um, is expected to be fully depleted by April, leaving FEMA without the ability to provide emergency shelters, food, and medicine. Now, I just want to remind our, our listeners, this isn't the only emergency disaster fund that's available. Uh, funds can be pulled from other accounts. This account, however, according to FEMA's uh, latest monthly report, says the fund will run a $24 billion deficit by September 30th, 2021. And for context, this fund has never run out. So. Yeah, what usually, what usually uh, Dan, when this happens, that uh, Congress provides a disaster supplemental. FEMA used to be uh, Katrina onwards. FEMA was the uh, 
one of the big causes of a supplemental appropriation bill. And certainly, it, if this is coming right now, all I can say is that disasters that occurred in 2020, they haven't been addressed in terms of a federal disaster supplemental. They probably need to be. The last time we had a disaster supplemental was 2019. Right. And unfortunately, disasters are piling up every year. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the federal government is good at putting out money after disasters. It isn't necessarily good and quick. It does eventually. It took even for Sandy uh, more than a year for them to put out uh, their first uh, Sandy, uh, first of three Sandy appropriation bills. But I think this will uh, probably cause another disaster supplemental. So get ready, folks. We have this year the COVID. Bill that is now passed the House. Multi trillion. Absolutely. At least 1.9, as mm -hmm. proposed by uh, um, President Biden. Uh, you then have the Build Better America. I forget the name of the infrastructure bill, yeah. but that's along, coming along. And then you have a disaster supplemental. I mean, uh, this is a major, major amount of money. Huge. I mean, I, this, is, this podcast is focused on the coast. So I don't want to get into finance and things like that, but. No. When you look at, you know, everyone's talking right now about inflation, about, you know, the amount of money that's being put into our economy, and it's unusually large. Yeah, this, this, is, this is very large, and something we really haven't seen, because the 2008 uh, crash, when Obama came in, they scaled back their original stimulus, which was not even, as was originally proposed, wasn't uh, anywhere near as ambitious as uh, the COVID bill alone. So then you have infrastructure, which we badly need, and spending, which we badly need, according to Federal Reserve Chairman Powell. Spending is good uh, because that money gets into the hands of people who either have jobs or need jobs and who will then spend that money on, I don't care if it's toothpaste, toilet paper right. or anything else, essentials, mm -hmm. which then gets into the kind of thing which uh, Reagan will turn over to his Greg about, I'm talking about Ronald Reagan, uh, he talked about trickle-down economics, I believe in trickle-up up economics. Right, right. Well, it's interesting, and I guess there's only one way to see how this all is going to play out. Just sit hang up. on. See what's happening. <laughs> um, all right, well, now that the housekeeping is out of the way, I'd like to jump to our conversation with Tom O'Shea. All right, so I'd like to introduce Tom O'Shea, the Director of Coast and Natural Resources from the Trustees of Reservations, the largest nonprofit steward of the Massachusetts coastline, protecting 120 miles of shoreline across Massachusetts. Tom, how are you? Great, and glad to be here, Dan. Real honor. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Uh, you know, uh, a little bit of background, if you could, about the trustees, because you've got uh, since 19th century. You've been around, so a little context yeah, of how info. you got into this, that would be very helpful. Sure. Yeah, just so everyone knows, what, is the, what are the trustees of reservations? And we are um, the country's oldest land trust, actually, founded in 1891. And our mission is to preserve, you know, exceptional scenic, historic, and ecological places uh, that, you know, are, are really the jewels of the Commonwealth, if you will. And we are the Commonwealth's largest conservation and preservation organization. But what makes us particularly unique, you could say, is that you know, not only do we own historic homes and 350 buildings, we have farms, we have hundreds of miles of trails and forests, but we are this large coastal landowner. 
you know, stretching across 25 different coastal zone communities. We've got 26 miles of barrier beaches, thousands of acres of marshes. Uh, and so we've got a, a lot of property and history on the coast. And so that really kind of makes us a unique um, organization that way that is really feeling the impacts of climate. And that's, you know, one of the things that we've been witnessing over the last five to 10 years is unprecedented changes to these shorelines. So in 2017, we commissioned um, a coastal vulnerability assessment with Woods Hole Group to look at all of our coastal properties, all 35 of them across Massachusetts, to really understand what those climate-driven impacts might be to our property and get a really a risk assessment of the future. We looked at sea level rise, we looked at storm surge and combination, and what we found was is that we have these real areas that are on the front lines of coastal change, and that really precipitated the development for us into a coastal strategy that's in our strategic plan called Responding to Coastal Change. And part of that strategic plan was to include a state of the coast report. You know, we felt that we had an outsized responsibility as an organization to be a conservation leader on the coast and to use what, what we're experiencing in our properties as a model to talk about and share with our neighbors and attend to the communities that we're a part of and saying, look, this is how it's impacting us. It's impacting all of you as well. And we think we have an opportunity to engage so many people. We have a, over half a million people come to our beaches each year. So between who we, we actually you know, engage with at our properties that see this happening right in front of them, we have an opportunity to really talk about it, show how we're trying to respond to it, and using the State of the Coast report helps us to build off what we're doing, but really include the bigger picture for how we're all sort of handling this right now. And I would say that, you know, for all of us right now, and I've said this before, this is a regional, a statewide, a, a national issue, a global issue, and it, in flooding knows no boundaries. And so we've really said, let's kind of bring everybody together. And the report is just a call to action kind of a platform for conversation. And I'll just lastly just say that, you know, for us, when we got into this, it's not easy for a coastal landowner or an organization to bring together all the different uh, science, perspectives, impacts, solutions, and really make sense of it. It's really, it's, you know, there's a lot of things to consider. It's complex, it's multidimensional. And we thought that this report would be a way we could package it all together and make it digestible uh, for, for a general audience. Tom, I expect that a lot of the property that the trustees own is, is basically undeveloped, but your report covers both developed shorelines and undeveloped. Uh, do you see differences in how that's going to be approached uh, in terms of the difficulties of dealing with things? Yeah, I, I do think so, and I'll, and I'll get into that, what we've experienced here in Massachusetts. And first, I should add that our own properties have built buildings. We own 350 statewide, and some of them are along the coastline and are, are and will be impacted by, by these changes from climate on the coast. So we are a coastal landowner that has that shared risk with others. Uh, certain, you know, we don't own the homes, but we do own some properties that you know, are, are gonna be impacted. So, and we own seawalls, we have trails, we have roads. I mean, the you know, think about it, all our beaches, you have to get through some area of low-lying elevation to get to a beach. So 
for the millions of people who want to get to beaches, they're going to go through roads that ultimately uh, are going to be more and more frequently flooded. So the question is, how do people even get to the shoreline? That was something we were wondering. Plus, our beaches are eroding at incredible unprecedented rates. Some of the, our beaches are the highest in the state of Massachusetts. We feel like we, we share some of those concerns that, that our, our communities do. What I'm finding is, is that, and this is probably makes sense, but much of the state funding and focus of municipalities and local communities is on infrastructure. And that's usually uh, things like your road systems, which makes sense, uh, your water sewer treatment plants, you know, um, a lot of your public infrastructure. When you see these reports, there's not a lot of talk on, well, what are we doing about the natural coastal systems? How are we addressing those? If you just did a Google search in media for any particular coastal town in, in Massachusetts, New England, maybe the East Coast, you're going to find more about those developed coastal issues than anything on the natural side, typically. But we as the trustees see that as part of the whole solution is that this natural coastline is really what makes us resilient, what makes the coast an incredible place. But we know that our members, our visitors, the people who live in these communities, they live in some of these places that are at risk on the shoreline. And we wanna talk about how that's affecting them. And that's a way that we engage as a coastal landowner with other coastal landowners. I think that what we've seen is that right now there's a real question about, well, what do we do? Do we right, protect? Do we adapt in some way or do we retreat? And those, as you know, are the kind of the three fundamental choices that these coastal landowners and, and municipalities and developed areas have to, have to choose. And I'm not sure that we're at the point where there's been real clear choices being made yet. There have been planning efforts for public infrastructure projects, but very few to point to that have actually been completed. There's a huge design permitting and construction phase. It takes, takes time, takes a lot of funding. And you know, same with seawalls, right? There's hundreds of miles of seawalls up and down the coast of Massachusetts. Many of them are aging and need replacement renewal and the question is, are we going to just do what we've always done? Or are we going to do something different? Our urban areas like Boston, you, you can just look at the um, projected impacts for the city of Boston. That's a big area, a lot of people, a lot of uh, real estate impacted. And those, those places are also going to have to make these choices. So what we tried to do in the report is to start to put those, those choices out there. What could, what could you do? What do you need to start thinking about? And it is challenging, and, and I'd happy to get into that a little bit more. I'm sure you probably have some follow-up questions, uh, Howard. I don't know if that, you yeah. know. No, that's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Let's get into one of those challenging things, because you do recommend, or at least discuss, that, uh, you know, property buyouts, for example, uh, and other expensive measures. Where do you think the money is going to come from? I know this is not something where you have to have an answer, but, you know, it, it is a significant problem. It is. And, you, you know, this is a problem that we're going to have to face no matter what. We either face it as damage to develop property down the road, chronic sometimes damage. We're already going to pay in some way uh, publicly for disaster relief. 
And in, eventually insurance companies, and you're already seeing this, don't even insure some properties because of the risk levels. And so one way or another, we pay. And, the, and I think for us right now, we're looking at how do you pay for people who can't afford to protect or adapt? And in some of your low income areas, whether you're a property owner or a resident who just doesn't have that ability or those options to protect or adapt, then you need, you need an option to help those people deal and cope with this. And so we're looking at potentially you know, legislation that could offer relief to those homeowners and residents that can't afford to protect or adapt and giving them a chance to, um, you know, be, to have a buyout that provides relief and help with relocation. And that, to me, is a good place to start right now because the other coastal landowners will, will, who can't afford protection will find some sort of avenue to cope for the next, say, you know, 20, 30 years. However, having said that, what we're seeing is that a lot of people don't realize the acceleration of that risk. And what we're trying to do in this report is to say, wait a minute, I know if you, if you made your decision on what you're seeing today, you're not actually going to be ready for tomorrow. So the cost in terms of it'd be better to pay for things now and today sooner than, you know, shift this burden to my kids' generation 30 years from now who are going to have less options at that point in time. Um, so we're going to pay. It's a question, do we want to pay or let our children pay um, and pay and probably even more so? And uh, I say start in a smart way and find the public federal sources local sources, state sources, to fund those efforts where people really do need help, where it is going to be critical that those, you know, that those homeowners and residents have some relief. The, the, you know, I don't know where the insurance companies are going to go with all of this right now and, and what role they have to play in it. It's, it's really unclear at this point. Um, and we have state-sponsored insurance in Massachusetts that helps provide insurance for homeowners that you know, wouldn't qualify for private insurance. But at some point, how do we take that state-sponsored insurance funding and does it help maybe with buyouts? Right now, in, uh, in the environmental bond bill in Massachusetts, uh, they, they authorized $50 million for a coastal buyout program. So there's a recognition from the legislature that we've got to do something. They had authorized the funding, but there was no mechanism you know what I mean, to decide and choose how to spend that. And we're going to try to help develop some, some language to do that. So in terms of the challenges, which are obviously very significant, New England is an area in Massachusetts, certainly the same as every other, the other New England states, very individualistic. The local communities, very strong part of government. You mentioned the word regional earlier, and I want to get back to that, because we focused on that in our work, uh, because no matter whether you are a rich community or a poor community, you really can't take it on by yourself. It's all the planning, the technical work, plus the implementation, and, you know, how do we get to that point of getting people to work together? You know, you have any ideas to... You know, break you know, the, I, uh, I, I, I think what, what we need to do is first make it people aware that this transcends property and community boundaries. And that was one of the important pieces we thought of this State of the Coast report is to highlight that these issues transcend every, 
every community property boundary. The coastal systems do, the flooding impacts do, and ultimately the funding. Um, you know, and how, and I think, Howard, you were just talking about, you know, what it takes to actually implement these solutions at a local level. I'm not sure a lot of our town and city, you know, departments have the capacity to engage in, you know, these large coastal shoreline projects. I mean, how many can they take on and for how long? Much of the funding in Massachusetts goes to relieve, to, to communities it doesn't go to, to you know, you know uh, other entities typically, and so the communities have to then figure out how they're going to spend all that money, and they don't have necessarily the staff or the capacity to do it. That's, so that's it, what we're it, seeing as well. Is is this most communities, whether they have even if most don't have the money, but if even if they do have the money, they have no idea how to go about the planning and technical expertise, which is something that we've been actually talking about on our podcast quite a bit, because the Corps of Engineers offers opportunities to do that, but. Um, you know, what we found is that you know, most of the responsibility falls on local and state governments and mostly local governments. Um, That's right. Yeah. Uh, if we had a way to actually develop um, some sort of organizational project management capacity to towns, whether it's through a nonprofit organization, whether a quasi-governmental organization, but in a consortium, if you will, in some ways, with consultants and engineers and other groups that can can help uh, facilitate and uh, actually make project management less of a burden for towns, then you could sort of, you know, make things move faster. The other is the regulatory side, because in Massachusetts, we've got, um, you know, one of the strongest wetland protection acts in the country, and you've got to really know what you're doing to go through the regulatory process, create the environmental impact reports that are required through our uh, Massachusetts Environmental Policy Act regulations. So it's it's burdensome. And I think there's a way to do it, whether it's smart teams, consortiums, something that provides that project management capacity. Uh, maybe it's a state agency that does this. I don't I don't know, but I think we're not talking about it in a, in a real way yet where we're saying, all right, let's set something up. It's regional or statewide that supports local communities. We as a nonprofit uh, are, are, are trying to help in our way, but more on the conservation side, whether it's restoration, living shoreline projects, uh, support you know, in, in the state house with public policy. You know, we're doing our part and other nonprofits too but it seems like on the municipal side, we're not really, um, there are a few partnerships yet between that nonprofit side and the, and the, and the community side yet. We've got some, um, but it's, it's not quite where we need to be. So I don't have the full solution, but I think we're, we've got to move in that direction, like you say. You know, we've talked about, uh, you know, you mentioned living shorelines. Now, one of the, one of the things that's, that's very important to us is management of sediment. And, um, Massachusetts in particular is, is pretty sensitive to its fisheries and, and you know, offshore management of, of coastal resources. How do you see beneficial use of sediment, uh, sediment management playing into your, you know, your plan going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's first of all, what we found in the report is that our beaches are on the front lines of shoreline change. They're, they're, they're fragile and dynamic anyway by nature, and we're now seeing more of a net loss and chronic erosion as the issue. So sediment now is becoming potentially more scarce than ever. It's, it's, and its value is like gold these days. I mean, 
uh, tr more than $25 per cubic yard of sand on Martha's Vineyard. And we're looking at doing dune restoration out there. And if we were to have it barged in, it would be over $40 a cubic yard. So, you know, you want to do a few hundred feet of dune restoration, you're talking of a quarter million um, to half a million dollar project. And then the question becomes from everybody, what's the return on investment? So how, how long do we, you know, maintain beach integrity here? Um, and, you know, is this just uh, throwing sand into the water? Um, this, to me, is a question about really your time frame and your expected benefits. And, and I don't know that we've come to a sort of general convention of saying, you know, here's the threshold. You, you know, if, you, if you're able to maintain beach access and dune integrity and habitat integrity for another five to ten years under this environment in this scenario, okay, then it's worth investing X amount of dollars. Like, you don't, there's no playbook yet where you can go and you say, well, in this high energy environment, yeah, you know, you're one, two, one or two year storms and you're done. You're back to, you're back to, to ground zero again. Um, and how long will we continue to invest in this way? Right now, it seems like in some cases where you have homeowners and residents at risk, they're going to get that kind of relief typically and the sand sometimes gets there because it's emergency, it's considered public safety, public health, right, and prop property uh, protection. On beaches like the trustees, well, we, you know, nobody's living right, right on them, uh, but they are critical for hundreds of thousands of people who like to visit them, uh, globally significant shorebirds, and in some cases, we provide the only overseen vehicle access in, in Massachusetts. There are other beaches, but not many. And uh, we are faced with this question right now, what is beneficial use of sediment? And near as I can tell for us, it's a question of where do you actually do dune restoration? Where do you do beach nourishment? Dune restoration seems to have a little more benefit potentially than beach nourishment, which is often sacrificial, but it does slow down your erosion. Um, and you know, we're studying right now through some coastal wave and sediment studies with University Boston University. We've done some modeling with Woods Hole Group, and we're trying to figure out what is that, um, what's that point at which the intervention makes sense and which it doesn't. And I think the trustees have a chance here to actually use some beach resiliency trials and use them as demonstration areas and then say, look, people, look what we're doing. This is what happened when we did this. Are we still willing to, you know, you almost have to intervene because if you don't, the question will always be out there, well, why didn't they do something, right? So this is a case where we're going to, we're going to try different interventions and in resiliency trials in our beaches, see what happens, showcase them, and then say, look, you know, this is what we're finding. I think there's a, another phase to this conversation, which is that 10, 20, 30 years from now, maybe people will be saying, you know, we've got to take a different strategy on our beaches, and, and particularly in our developed beaches. Um, so I, I guess beneficial sediment works depending on what your own ROI is here, right? And what is your own sort of expectation? Um, it's, it's a value-based question, Dan, that you're asking. It's, it's really tough at, at this point in time. I think as a conservation organization, if you can make a difference through living shorelines, you can make a difference through dune restoration, there are probably some areas where it, it really... It really makes sense from even a, a, a habitat standpoint to do some interventions. Sediment, though, right now, what we're finding is it's either getting washed up further inland 
overwashed, dunes are getting overwashed inland or the sand's going offshore or downdrift. And uh, some of it's getting put into our estuaries, which becomes more difficult at that point to sort of, well, how do you, you know, you can dredge in those channels, that takes time. Um, and you dredge in some of these coastal ponds, but some of the sand you're never gonna get back. And uh, I don't know, I'd be, I'd be interested what, you, what you're hearing and, and you know, what you're seeing in other places. Well, I just want to first mention the costs that you're throwing out, 25 up to 40. I mean, what do we see, Howard, 15 to, to 20 yeah. maybe here in, in New Jersey, maybe 25 when we're talking about going offshore. But, I mean, geez, $40 a cubic yard, that is... Prohibitive. Pro exactly. That, that's yeah. the best word. Yeah. Um, you know, if we, have, if we have overall sand costs and in, in the United States that approach that level, that's an enormous level of investment that's required. Plus, we have increased levels of dredge, uh, increased demand on dredge. There's a very low supply of, of uh, you know, dredges right now. There's only a handful of dredgers in the nation that are capable of doing the, the, the work that's on the scale that we're talking about. Um, you know, the, these projects are not your local dredger, you know, coming and moving 30,000. These are multi-million, if not hundreds of thousands of cubic yards. So, um, yeah. And I think what we uh, see in New England... It's different from the Mid-Atlantic or the South or, to some extent, the Gulf, is that uh, you have a lot of, there are navigation channels, there are a lot of federal navigation channels. And uh, this gets into a question that I want to ask you after I do my own uh, filibustering here. But basically, channels trap sand. It's just not their purpose, but it is nature. So they trap sand. So you take the Cape Cod Canal. And uh, let's say the town of Sandwich has to fight uh, with the help of the Corps, but even the resistance of people at higher levels of the Corps to stop that sand from being dredged and dumped offshore, where it'll, it'll be lost and get too expensive to get back, and also environmental consequences of that rather than making use of it. And, and so you know, in terms of getting use, use of it right on the neighboring shores for both uh, resilience and for environmental restoration. But, so it gets to the question, you mentioned state policy, but, you know, what is the role of the federal government in all of this? We're into something philosophical here, right? and, and that I think is very debatable for all of us, because uh, the federal government comes in post-disaster, we know that. But what's the role in terms of proactive involvement, and do you see anything for that role, or is it one where it could be too heavy-handed? Yeah, it's a great question, Howard, and uh, yeah, I, I think what the federal government's role can be is that they can bring things to scale that, that a state and local government can't, um, just in terms of funding and support. The question is where, where does that, where does that at scale funding and support happen? How is it funded? To, to do that, um, you know, are still remaining questions. What you see available through coastal grants from the federal agencies, I don't see them generally at scale. Um, they, they, some of the restoration projects in the nat nature side, some of them can be at scale. Uh, um, you know, we've got one going right now in, in, in Anaka Grant for our marshes, uh, and that's pretty good. But, you know, some of these large infrastructure and sediment questions yeah, the federal government can actually play a role at some major restoration projects. 
uh, but to what end ultimately, right? And, you know, I haven't seen the sort of grand plan. And that's what I think the other thing that federal government could do is say, look, across the East Coast, here's where our priorities would be, which I know is certainly brings in the political piece to all this, but there needs to be that sort of grander vision of, that unifies states and says, look, if we're going to act, these are the kinds of places we need to act and invest in these. You know, they may not pay off. They may not. And it's a tough thing to talk about, but we can't do it all. There's got to be a recognition that we have to be strategic. And we have to prioritize uh, and just can't do it everywhere. And that and, and what the, and what the implications of that answer would be is, oh, some of these places are going to have to retreat or accept loss. And that's a hard message. And we're just not quite willing to talk about that yet. Or the other is, is do you, you know, in the case of like you brought up sandwich, you've got these hard armoring around these beaches and that's part of starving areas of sand. And they're trying to refill them back because they're starving the sand because of a nearby hard, hard armored structure. That could be another solution is where we start softening much of our, of our hard armored areas. I know that we can't get rid of all our seawells, but can we make them softer? There are ways that we can, you know, um, slow that sediment loss and starvation. So, but but again, if it's in a grant format, this is what I find: you've got to have a, a landowner or a community that's willing to put the effort and time into pursuing a grant for that for that federal funding. Is there another mechanism to the federal budgeting system where you know they set up uh, states? with a big enough budget to make this stuff happen at the state level. Um, that's what I see. Well, that's interesting because right now Howard and I are, are working on a piece of legislation um, that should be called the Coast Act, but we're, you know, we, haven't, we haven't fully gotten there yet, and that it does exactly that. It puts hands in the money of the state. Reverse it. Um, puts money in the hands of the states. Yeah. Um, essentially to allow them to make uh, and in essence, grants to local governments, and also receive expertise uh, and planning, planning and technical assistance from the Corps of Engineers. Um, and as long as that's consistent with the state's coastal management program, that you know everything that falls in line with the state's rule book, um, that that would be an opportunity for the Corps to do what the Corps is best at, and help all the states nationwide with at least their planning and technical expertise. Uh, to, to figure out what they're going to do next. The, the financing component is, is, a, is a totally different piece, but at least get them to figure out what they can do. And then yeah. maybe some of that money can be used for implementation on some sort of revolving basis. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That, that's a, that's a, big, a good step in the right direction. I think largely the, uh, the coastal states are not well organized. Now, I need to put in an asterisk about that, the coastal states organization itself, which represents coastal zone managers, uh, in essence represents all the governors of the coastal states. Uh, it, it's doing a good job. It's not, uh, but the fact of the matter is that in terms of organized, at least regionally, to be dealing with what, what's best for New England, which has a very different coast from the Mid-Atlantic. And each of these coasts is different as we get, as we move along. And this includes the West Coast, which is entirely different. Great Lakes, which we also include. Um, I think it's uh, that approach of trying to get some regional approach, which has to be driven basically bottom up because you really don't want the federal government, which is good at uh, regulations and it's good at throwing money at things, but not necessarily in a uh, very mindful approach.
Yeah. So at least that's you know the feeling that we have here. No, that's right, and I and I would agree with you because when we said regional, we meant that yeah, there's the the local character in that region that is has different coastal processes, different issues, different types of communities and cultures, and and you need to to be sensitive to that and and really deal with the the issues at that that level. I agree, which is why we've broken this report up in regions. By the way, yeah, you know our next report, or it's going to be on Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, which are two island communities. And when you're an island community, you're, you're really at, at, the, at the mercy of a lot of this coastal change. Uh, your whole economic system is dependent on how you cope with it. So, um, you know, we thought, let's break those co- communities and regions out because of that point, Howard. That's um, good, great. But you're going to be doing, uh, what is it, a total of four annual reports? You've already done one, so you yeah. have three more to go? Yeah, we're, we're doing the Vineyard Nantucket this, this summer. We'll release that report, and uh, that will be really interesting, um, I think, just because those are very unique and, of course, very well-known places. And then we're going to move to Cape Cod next. After that, um, you know, South Coast or South Shore and then Boston. So that's sort of the, the, the thought right now. Very cool. Well, we're looking forward to that. Very much commended the trustees of reservations in Massachusetts for all the work you've not only done you know, over the past more than a century, but all the, now this commitment now on the coast to dealing with things which are obviously difficult uh, socially, it's difficult economically, environmentally, and politically, and expensive as well. So Tom, what's, oh, that's know, right. if, if people want to get involved with your organization, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, they certainly can go to our uh, website, uh, and I think we probably have that. Uh, if not, I can, can give it to you, but it's the trustees.org and backslash coast. And we have a coastal microsite, and you can learn more about not only the state of the coast report, but really what we're doing statewide and how we're thinking about uh, coastal resilience. So I'd really you know love to have people... Um, you know, reach out to us that way. Actually, we'll be sure to and, include and that link. Of course, I can reach to Okay, great. Thank you very much, Tom, for this discussion today. Uh, we look forward, uh, hopefully, Dan and I, to being up in New England when we can travel. It may take a while, so uh, nevertheless, we'll stay in touch with you electronically and uh, congratulate the organization for what it's done and continues to do. Thank you so much, Dan and Howard. I really appreciate it. It was an honor and a privilege uh, to be a part of your show. We welcome you to our beaches if you're ever up in the area and uh, to our properties. We'd love to uh, meet you in person someday, and it was a real pleasure, so thank you. All right. Thanks, thanks so much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, and thanks very much for tuning into the Waterlogged Podcast. We'll see you guys back next month. Take care. Bye.